Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Greetings, Presidencies listeners. Just a quick content note here. There are references to violence throughout this episode related to the colonial experience and enslavement. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. So this is actually a Madison presidency episode, but it is an episode that I'm joined by a very special guest. Today, I'm joined by Joseph Pascone of the Turning Tides podcast, and we'll get to why I invited him to come on this episode in just a moment. But first of all, Joe, I just want to thank you so much for being here and for your time for this episode. Oh, of course. No problem. Uh, thank you so much for allowing me to, to come on and, and talk about this. I'm really passionate about it. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. Absolutely. So for our guests, you know, we have been talking so much about what's been going on around the United States at the time of the Madison presidency because there was so much that was happening in Spanish-held territories and territories that were still held by the British. There was so much happening that did have an impact on the Madison presidency, on what was going on in the U.S., and the U.S. in turn was impacting those areas. And so Joe is here to give us more information about what was going on in the Caribbean region and in particular Puerto Rico. You know, Puerto Rico, of course, now is a commonwealth in the United States. It is part of the United States. And we will ultimately get to that place in presidential history where that transfer happened, where the United States took over Puerto Rico. But we need to know now kind of what's going on in that region, what's going on with Puerto Rico because it is going to have an impact. And in turn, the history of that region is going to be impacted by what happens with presidents, with American politics, with American history. And so Joe on his podcast has covered some of this. And so I invited him on because I thought that he would be able to bring great insight and perspective for us as we look at this through the lens of presidential history. But before we get to that, Joe, I'd like to give you a moment to talk about your podcast, to share with our audience what you do on Turning Tides and where folks can find you. So my name is Joseph Pescone. I'm a podcaster and amateur historian. I started the Turning Tides podcast at the request, basically, of my partner, Melissa. She inspired me to do it, much like your husband inspired you to start this podcast. So There's a little bit of a similarity there. And I started it because I was super interested in lesser known turning points in history. There's so much history that is just sort of obscured to 
Western readers, either be through public education or through just the, you know, the Western media and their focus on uh, certain, uh, certain things like European history, for example. I cover European history, but I try to do it in a, a different way that, uh, than most historians would cover it. I have a several series right now out. The first one I ever did was on the Italian Risorgimento, which is the forming of Italy into a nation state as we know it today. Following that, I did the Puerto Rico series, which you referenced. I started these two because I am Italian and Puerto Rican, and I wanted a way to connect to my own past and to my own um, being. And through researching, through learning about these places, I, I've learned so much about myself and about my own story and my own history. And I've learned so much about other people's history and other places and other things. And I think it's so important to focus on lesser known parts of history because they really help define the world we live in today and how we got to this place. History isn't just one massive event. It's a bunch of miniature events played out on a grand scale. And that's what I try to do in Turning Tides. I bring attention to lesser known parts of the globe, lesser known parts of history. And I try to shed light on that area. For example, right now I'm doing uh, a massive series on the labor movement, the labor movement in America specifically. Why I do this to myself, I'm not quite sure, but that's that's what's going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just finished writing the second episode, actually. As, as we just started speaking, I just finished uh, rereading the copy. So that's already in the record. And I'm very excited to where this series is going to take me because like some people, I have a family who were members of a union. My grandfather was a teamster and he was a teamster during the reign of Jimmy Hoffa. So there are so many contradictions and so many strange eccentricities about the labor movement during that time specifically. You had the them working hand in hand with the mafia, but you also had the support of the federal government during the FDR administration. And right now I'm covering things like the Pullman strike, uh, the Chicago Haymarket uh, riot, where four people were executed. One person killed themselves because of their opinions, basically. They were anarchists and socialists. Their movement was growing rapidly in a place like Chicago and other immigrant cities like this. And they were targeted because of their beliefs and they were executed for it. Uh, it's a lesser known part of American history purely because it's not a very clean thing to talk about. Talking about socialists in America, this isn't supposed to be the way that American history plays out. We're supposed to be an individualist country. But in reality, a lot of these early socialists uh, believed in the same principles. They just supported it in a different way. They were socialists like Thomas Jefferson was a quote unquote socialist or how Abraham Lincoln was a quote unquote socialist. So it's incredibly interesting to dive into this part of history. And Puerto Rico is super, super important, not just to America, but to world history. It is the single oldest colony in the history of the earth. There is no older colony. It was first uh, colonized in 1511 by Ponce de Leon, Juan Ponce de Leon. Previous to that, it was originally settled circa 8,000 BCE. We don't know if that's the correct number and, and revelations are being discovered every single day 
about the native peoples in the Americas, uh, how far they were supposed to have existed or how long they existed for. I only recently read an article that uh, revealed that actually the native people of Southern Florida were there for thousands and thousands of years previously than what we originally thought. So whenever you see like a number 8,000 BCE, that's when the first people settled there. That's the first time we found a piece of, you know, pottery, a piece of uh, arrowhead, etc., in the ground in a, a refuse pile. That's what we're talking about there. Humans probably existed there thousands and thousands and thousands of years previous to then, but because of their existence, they were hunter gatherers. They were fishermen. A lot of their tools, a lot of their uh, lives, are, are lost to time because wood decays, you know, a uh, few things that remain are things like bone, uh, fragments of animal, which were a huge part of their sort of religion. Now, there's a bunch of different theories on to uh, where the first people of Puerto Rico came from. Some people argue that they came from Mexico in what is today around Mexico City. Others argue that they actually came from Peru. Uh, in the Andes mountain chains, and they ended up migrating throughout the entire Central America, uh, Southern Mexico, Caribbean region. They did this by traveling through the natural waterways that exist in the Caribbean. There are a bunch of different waterways you could use, like one that goes from the Yucatan to Cuba. So that's how the first people got to Cuba. And then from Cuba, you could take a very short route to Hispaniola or Haiti and Dominican Republic. Then from there, it's a short route to Puerto Rico. So this is how the sort of line of migration went. But there's a separate line of migration that goes up the Lesser Antilles, uh, the Leeward or Windward Islands, uh, as they're called. And they followed up through the path of uh, Venezuela, modern day Venezuela, in the Orinoco River Valley. Uh, that's at least where it's postulated. And they kind of met and clashed in Puerto Rico. Now, either one of these civilizations triumphed over the other, or they joined their resources and became their, a new civilization through, you know, assimilation and, uh, you know, uh, mixing of cultures. How the Tainos came about, or thousands of years after this, maybe around 500 to 1000 AD, the Taino civilization, as we sort of understand it, came into being. Now, was this uh, another migration of people? It may have been. It may have been a combination of the people that originally living there. Uh, you know, they, they gained new traits from North America, South America, Central America, and it all kind of meshed together into a, a new island-based culture. And the whole thing about the Tainos is that they were from islands. They, they believed that human beings, the first human beings, you know, uh, or ascended from caves in the middle of uh, Hispaniola. They called Hispaniola Bojio, which means in the Taino language, home. This is literally their birthplace. And if you look at some of the topography of, of Hispaniola, it's actually very strange. There are two separate caves, one on each end of the island. And this was supposed to be the birthplace of all human beings. They even had a location for it. It's not just some obscure, oh, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, the garden. 
no one knows where the garden is, but they knew exactly where they came from. And this shaped their entire worldview. Even the start of the hurricanes was deeply, uh, it was deeply coalesced with Taino mythology and religion. Uh, in one of the founding myths, for example, the Taino women leave with this great hero, this great warrior who ends up killing his brother. So there's a bunch of symbolism right there. And he kills his brother by dunking his head into the water. And this is simulated in the sky to the Tainos. When they look up into the sky, they see the Big Dipper. And during hurricane season, uh, hurricanes are, are, are terrifying phenomenon. And they were just as terrifying then. During hurricane season, the Big Dipper, it looks like it is its head is under the water, like this mythical brother. So you see they had... You know, they had beliefs and everything they believed in made perfect sense to their worldview and it made perfect sense in the sky. They built massive ball pits uh, where they played a, a ball game. Some earlier historians postulated that this was taken from like the Maya or the Aztec. But in reality, the connection between the Caribbean and Central America was completely shattered around 1000 AD. And that was because of the Caribs. The, the Caribs were a very warlike tribe. They practiced ritual cannibalism. This is something that's perpetuated throughout the world. You could see different examples of it. Africa, there are African tribes who would ingest their, um, their opponent and therefore gain their power. This was the same idea in the Caribs for the Caribs. And they be, the name Caribbean comes from this people because they were the number one boogeyman once the colonizers arrived from Europe. Well, and, and it's interesting. I was, I was actually just thinking as you were talking, a couple of themes kind of came to mind. And we'll come back to those after this brief message. Gentlemen, we all know first impressions matter. And if you're not taking care of your skin, that's going to be the first thing someone notices and instantly either thinks you're older than you really are are that you just don't care about your appearance. Show them you do, and make a great first impression with Caldera Lab. I know that for me, time is of the essence, and that's why I've enjoyed the experience with using Caldera Lab's products, because taking just a minute or so in the morning and the evening, I've seen improvements in my skincare. You're going to brush your teeth today, so with just an extra minute in that already existing routine, you can quickly and easily take steps to leave your face refreshed. Caldera Lab creates high-performance men's skincare products, and the regiment leads off their product lineup, a twice-a-day routine to transform your skin. The regiment includes three products, the Clean Slate, the Base Layer, and the Good. The Clean Slate starts and ends your day. This face wash leaves all skin types refreshed. The Base Layer is your daily moisturizer to hydrate your skin and jumpstart your day full of confidence. The Good is your go-to multifunctional serum at night that helps your skin look tighter and smoother, as well as helps reduce the visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. Every drop of this serum is packed with 3.4 million antioxidant units protecting your skin. And the Caldera Lab Icon Eye Serum. It addresses the three most common skin concerns around the eye, fine lines, dark circles, and puffiness. 
Caldera Lab is the leader in men's skincare, made only with top-tier ingredients, and clinical trials have found 94% of men's skin showed an overall younger-looking appearance after using Caldera Lab for a few weeks. One minute, morning and night, is all it takes to reduce your wrinkles, fine lines, and signs of aging. And just for our audience, we have an exclusive offer. This is their best offer available anywhere. Use code PRESIDENCIES at calderalab.com and get 20% off right now. Again, get 20% off with code PRESIDENCIES at calderalab.com and make unforgettable first impressions that lead to the charming words, you look younger. Thank you so much and back to our program. Yeah, first of all, speaking as somebody who really works more in history versus prehistory and thinking of you know, when we're engaging with primary and secondary sources and get to that frustrating point where you just don't know something, you know, it's yeah. not in the the written record, but with folks who work in prehistory, it's even more so really an, an educated guessing game, a, a theory mm-hmm. that can easily be overturned by you know, the discovery of a new artifact or the discovery of a, a new site. And that's just, it's fascinating to think about. And that was one of the things, you know, as we started talking about this episode and I started doing some preliminary research, you know, reading about that prehistory and hearing, you know, well, we used to think this, but now here's something else that's come up that's made us rethink that. So to me, that's, that's fascinating. But then also, you know, what we do know, what we've been able to discover and, you know, figure out, it really speaks to the role of culture in trying to understand one's space as an individual and as a society in a larger world that maybe we don't understand. And we're trying to make sense of it in our minds. And that becomes parts of our culture, whether it's religion, mythology, or just in our day-to-day lives, or or even, you know, how we engage in recreation. And it's just, it's fascinating that those two things, you know, you really spoke to those as you were talking. So I just wanted to make sure to highlight those because that's really fascinating. And like you were saying, it is complete guesswork. We don't even know, for example, what the daily life of a Taino was. We can guess, we can assume that, you know, they would spend a good majority of their day in the water, uh, fishing and, and, and cleaning themselves in preparation for religious ceremony. But these, these is complete guesswork because the second the Spaniards arrive, the entire Taino culture is completely just decimated. And to the theme of your podcast, you know, that was really one of those turning points yeah. in in the history of the Taino people and the history of, you know, the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the biggest single historical event that's ever happened. And you could definitely make that argument. Two sides of the of the planet that didn't even know each other existed finally crash into contact. It's it's absurd. It's something out of science fiction. But it really happened and it it disastrously affected the Taino people. You could say that the Tainos were in a state of a a tribal government, so they weren't as quote-unquote advanced as some of these European-style, you know, kingdoms. 
but they were definitely in a series that they were in a place of serious transition. Uh, they, they understood agriculture. They had vast fields of, of sweet potatoes and, and, and other tubers that they grew. Uh, and, and this was all of Southern Puerto Rico. I mean, the name Puerto Rico is, for Tainos is, is um, Boriquen. And Boriquen, it's taken from the main Taino god, whose name was Yakuha Baguha, uh, uh, Bagoha Maricoti. And it's loosely translated into the Lord of the Yucca. So Puerto Rico is literally the land of the plentiful yucca. That's literally what the Tainos referred to it as because they understood that the soil was incredibly plentiful and, and rich there. And they were able to sustain very large populations. I mean, middling estimates are a million point one Tainos throughout the Caribbean, or not just throughout the Caribbean, in Hispaniola, the Bahamas, uh, the Leeward Antilles, and Puerto Rico, and Eastern Cuba. That that's those are the only places the Taíno culture as we understand it inhabited, and there were a million point one of them in this supposedly tribal quote unquote backward society. On top of this, recent revelations have revealed that the Taínos actually had a system of writing. Uh, this is really crazy. This is some, yeah, this is some newer information that they only just actually decided to examine because for hundreds of years um that, let, let me start with the this, the story there's this old woman she's on her deathbed the priest comes to her says uh, you have anything you have to tell me or, or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and she says yes i i am my family was tasked with protecting the library of the king of puerto rico before the spaniards came and so this priest is like what and, so he discovers these stones. There's hundreds of them with different inscriptions on it. And for a hundred years, hundred plus years, people were like, no, there's no way that this is, this is real. This is completely fabricated. This, this priest made it up. But now they only just had like um, linguistic specialists look at the stones. And there were three languages on it. One, we have no idea. The other two are somehow ancient Phoenician and ancient Hebrew. How how in the world did ancient wow. Hebrew and Phoenician texts end up in Puerto Rico of all places? It's absolutely stunning. And, and and everyone figured it was, you know, there were the ramblings of some guy who wanted to get rich. But these Nazar the, the, they're called the Father Nazarino stones. They actually show a completely new language that linguists have never seen before. There's no there's no basis for it in our understanding of human language. Wow. So it opens a whole new door. I mean, yeah, I mean, that speaks to, you know, and and that's the thing, it, it, the the mythology of the European, quote unquote, discovery of the new world and the intentional downplaying and decimation of cultures, because, of course, the European culture was quote unquote better. And you see so many so much rich culture and heritage and and all of that's wiped out yeah and replaced by the the europeans but it also speaks to you know that there are connections in wiping out that history we also wiped out that 
you know, there were some connections. There, of course, were going to be some connections. There was going to be somebody who thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe I will try to go across the ocean or maybe somebody just gets swept out and somehow ends up or whatever. You know, there, there were connections there that were starting to discover and, and starting to discover that it was more of a global society than we initially think of. And so it's, it's fascinating, you know, to see this in, in Puerto Rico that, that here we have texts from other areas of Eurasia and we also have a new language or, or a language that we didn't know existed. That is fascinating. Yeah, it's it's really, really incredible. And and people have postulated, oh, the Tainos are actually the, the lost tribe of Israel. This is the, the this is who they were. I mean, this is stuff that people genuinely have theorized. And they're about as those theories are about as, you know, backed by evidence as any other theory. I mean, it's complete guesswork. It really is. Yeah. Because I mean, we we have no way of knowing. Yeah, there's no way. There's no way we could possibly ever know that. We could look at DNA, and we know that uh, a good percentage of Tainos had an RDNA strand, which is specifically found in Scandinavia, for example. So this has gone on. This is how far the theories go. It's theorized that the first Tainos are actually descendant from the Lakota Sioux and the first Vikings of Greenland. I mean, this is how... This is how deep it goes. And somehow that strand of DNA wove its way down the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico, into the Caribbean. And that is one of the reasons why the Taino people still somehow survive, because with this DNA strand, they were actually able to survive diseases uh, at a higher rate than someone who wouldn't have this DNA strand, this genetic history. It's incredibly intriguing, and it shows how truly um, global the world was. And it shows that it, there didn't need to be an extinction. The, the Tainos didn't need to be wiped out because the Vikings were already – they were traitors, and, and they were hanging out with the, the Inuits of Greenland. They, 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 it was an unstable friendship, but they didn't bother each other for the most part when the Viking settlement in Greenland – went away, people assumed that they just disappeared too. But let's think about this logically. Uh, would those people join with this neighboring tribe who seem to know what they're doing? They're still there while they're all, while all the Vikings are passing away from diseases and hardship and malnutrition? Or would they just like give up? I think that it makes perfect sense for these same Vikings to join with the local tribe, and then the local tribe would spread their influence uh, becoming blossoming into a Lakota Sioux culture because we know that the Lakota Sioux people, their origin stories are that they are people of the waves and that they come from the ocean. So there's a bunch of very interesting things when you start dissecting these these uh, Aboriginal cultures and some of their backstories. Are these just you know mythical machinations, or, or is there some truth in it? I think there's some truth in any myth. Yeah. But then, of course, we get to the point where we start to understand why they're, in part, this is still in the veil of history and we don't know that we'll ever know for certain is because then we have colonization. We have European powers who come over to the Western Hemisphere and start bringing over their 
their cultures, their aims, ambitions, you know, trying to build their economies. Mm -hmm. And we see, you know, this region, the, the West Indies, the Caribbean region becomes part of this power struggle. And so would you mind speaking to kind of how Spain took control of Puerto Rico and what role it played in the larger Spanish empire, but then also, yeah. you know, how other European powers tried, you know, attempted to bring it into their sphere of influence. So for sure. Yeah. Um, so to understand the Spanish peninsula, uh, you have to understand at least a little bit, the Roman empire, the Roman empire, one of their first colonies outside of Italy proper was in Spain. In Spain, they created massive mining complexes that were the closest thing to a modern mining operation that you could find today. I, 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 and tens of thousands of people worked in these mines and they were driven to death. I mean, they were worked to death. But from this colonization, Rome spreads its culture and its language to the people of the Iberian Peninsula. After Rome falls, the Germans actually lay claim to a good portion of Spain, the German Visigoths. They're supplanted, completely annihilated by the Islamic invasion under um, the caliph. Uh, I forget the caliph's name, but I believe it's the Umayyad, Umayyad caliph. He completely destroys the Christian kingdoms. All that's left is a very tiny handful of Christian paladies on the very northern end of the mountains of, of Spain. Islam reigns for a very long time, hundreds and hundreds of years. They help improve the agriculture, irrigation techniques. Very famously, the caliph in Cordoba is one of the most progressive and uh, you know industrious thinkers of the time. Uh, this eventually falls apart. Infighting develops, you know, son turns against father, bro brother turns against brother, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the Islamic states of Spain are completely shattered uh, from these ashes. There's three main Christian kingdoms that arise through the Reconquista of Spain. This is uh, several hundred years of war between Islamic and Christian uh, paladies in Iberia. The three main powers are Castile, who are the big military power. They're, they're very rich. They have a bunch of mines and everything. There's Aragon, which is a huge naval power. I mean, they have a, a massive Mediterranean empire. It spans from Italy to, you know, Barcelona. And then Portugal, who were the first, like, ocean-going, seafaring peoples, uh, at least in, in, in this circumstance. And these three powers kind of combine against Islam. They run out the, the Islamic uh, occupiers of their country, and they look elsewhere. So... There's a one guy, his name's Christopher Columbus. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, he um, he believed, uh, contrary to thinkers like Ptolemy, that the world was actually much smaller. A bunch of people say, oh, he was the first one to say the world was round. It's not true. Everyone knew the world was round. Uh, most, pe most people, at least, knew the world was round. But he believed that unlike Ptolemy, who accurately predicted the size of the earth and like 300 BC or something. It's really insane. But unlike him, he believed the world was actually very small. Uh, 
it went Europe and then a hop, skip and a jump, you'll end up in China if you sail west enough. That's where the term West Indies comes from because second he gets there, he, he believes, oh, I'm in India. I have to be. I mean, otherwise I kind of look like a fool, don't I? Yeah. In front of the king and queen who promised me all this Whoops. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually makes all of the sailors on the first voyage. They're in Cuba, I think. And he makes all the sailors sign a pledge that they know for sure that they're in Japan. Like this has to be Japan. Uh, if they actually landed in Japan, I think they would have been in for a rough time personally, but when they arrive in, yeah, they, they probably wouldn't have made it back. <laughs> yeah. It would have been, it would have been a footnote like, Oh, he set sails sometime in 1492. Never heard from again. And that would have been, that would have been all. But, um, in reality, they land at first somewhere in the Bahamas and then they discover the adjoining island chains. They don't discover Puerto Rico proper until the the next voyage in fifteen or in fourteen ninety three. It's mostly just like seen, and at first uh, Columbus graciously bestows a new name upon it. He calls it San Juan Batista after Saint John. And for a long time, Puerto Rico is actually called the Island of San Juan, and the city is called Puerto Rico. So it's super confusing, actually. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. And for a little bit after that, it was called Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico. <laughs> oh, my God. Not not confusing at all. I mean, I'm- yeah, it's not confusing at all. <laughs> you know, the Spaniards were known for their very thorough, you know, bureaucratic tendencies. They never made mistakes in, in regards to that. So but yeah, eventually they settle on the name. San Juan becomes the name of the islet. Uh just off the coast of northern northeastern Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico, which means rich port, is given to the rest of the island. So eventually we end up in the, the, the modern name San Juan of Puerto Rico, the city of San Juan in Puerto Rico, as opposed to then. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When he first meets the Tainos, his... his position changes on them. It depends on if they're giving him stuff or not. If they're not giving him stuff, then he's pretty sulky about them. He's like, oh, these people are barbarians. They, they don't know how to wash. Not, not to know how to, they don't know how to wash. It was actually the opposite. The Tainos were disgusted by the Europeans. They thought they were just, just they smelled and they, that, that's why the famous pictures that the natives are carrying around incense because the Europeans reek. They don't take showers. They don't bathe. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the Tainos spend most of their lives in the water. They're basically fish. I mean, uh, there are some people who say that they could hold their breath for like 30 minutes. I don't know if that's true. That seems a little excessive. But I, they, they were very acquainted with the ocean. So, and, and on top of this, cleanliness was a huge part of their religion. They had to literally purge their body of all negative influence in order to speak to the divine. This is what they believed at least. And they had tools for this where they would purge their stomachs 
in order to see clearly the the visions of their that they called them semis, but they're basically wooden totems that carry different uh, blessings with them, depending on the kind of totem it was. But sometimes, like I was saying, Columbus thinks these people are barbarians. We could take them out in five minutes. They don't know how to defend themselves. And other times he says, oh, they're the nicest people God has ever created. They're going to make such good subjects for you, my king, my queen. You're going to love it here. I mean, bunch of bunch of gold. There's gold everywhere, by the way. Uh, those who didn't bring gold had their hands chopped off. So this is the start of the genocide. I mean, it starts with him. It's it's. Yeah. I don't think it's fair to blame Columbus specifically. He was, if anything, kind of stupid. Like he was, um, he was a salesman. He was the world's first mega salesman because he sold this package of goods. And if he didn't get his return on it, it would have been hell to pay for him and for you know his family. And it ended up being that way anyways. So in a lot of ways, uh, and this is, uh, what's the book I have? It's called Conquistador, Conquistador Voices. The writer says that Columbus was a bridge. And just like a bridge, he was trod upon by everyone. And that's a pretty good summation for Columbus's future career. He is now vilified by people on the left. And during his time, he was crucified by his compatriots. I mean, he, he was considered corrupt. He was considered incompetent. And people came back to Spain with tales of this and, and how he would, he would just let the settlers of this new factory, that's what they called it, on, uh, it's called Isabella in uh, the modern Dominican Republic, I believe. Uh, he would just let them massacre natives all day. And then the, the natives would return the next day and, and return the favor. And this is, it would just devolve and it just devolved into this, you know, basically a race war uh, between these two forces. Now, how did, how did the Spaniards keep these millions of natives in line? There were only a few hundred of them. Well, they did something truly, truly terrifying. They turned the natives' communal structure, their community, against them so they would make the they would make the leader of the of your tribe they would make him the slave driver basically and they would turn the other members of nobility into overseers so now if you were a taino and you wanted to rebel you'd have to rebel against literally everything you've ever known against the only authority you've ever recognized against the only authority that's held any sway and pertinence over your lives. On top of this, these authority figures, they had the best totems. So if you if you made them mad, there's their totems would be mad at you and they would have, you know, supposedly affect your crops, they would affect your family, they would affect your relationships and it would it 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 just turned the knife inward on itself. It was a really sadistic way to go about doing this. And this wasn't done by Columbus. This was done by Columbus's next, the, the next governor of Santo Domingue. Uh, he was a guy named Nicolas de Ovando. Uh, he started this. It's called the Encomondiero system, where he harnessed the power of the Taino tribal structure and, and turned it against Tainos. Well, and I was just going to say, it, it's... yeah. yeah. Interesting because this really makes me think of 
A, how the United States would use Native peoples and turn Native peoples against one another in their bids to acquire land, to get the land treaties, and to make sure to weaken their abilities. You know, you, you, we're talking a lot about Tecumseh's Confederacy and how the government and government agents would deliberately turn you know, one village against another or one chief against another. And it was this systematic, you know, trying to separate people because, you know, if they did combine forces, yeah, they could pose yeah. a threat. And that's why Tecumseh and the Confederacy, at least for arguably for some time, was a true potential threat to American interest in the Midwest as we know of it today, but then also with the American with with the United States slave system. Yeah. Likewise, enslaved individuals would be put in positions where they would be in charge of other enslaved individuals. And so making people who are enslaved become the authority, at least in a limited sense. And again, it's all about dividing people, making sure to turn people against one another in order to achieve your aims. And and despite the mythologies that have been perpetrated over the years, you know, starting with like this idea of Columbus and the explorers, it was all about money and power. That's yeah. what this was all about. And it was people who were willing to do anything and be as brutal as as they needed to in order to get money and power. And th yeah. this sounds like this very similar and unfortunately uh, uh, something that's very common in history. Mm -hmm. It's it's a it's a, a, a very basic part of history. It's a I mean almost any era you want to look at uh, you see a supp supplanting supplanting of of one society or one power for another. It's usually to do with power and stuff. And like you were saying it had divide and conquer was the name of the game. A lot of people say guns, God and, and germs is what, you know, or, or like the technological superiority, quote unquote, of, of Europeans is what won, you know, the new world. What really won it is what you're saying. You got to divide and conquer. If you're able to turn, you know, a native tribe against the main power, you got a little bit more power on your side. Now your hundred guys are supplanted by a thousand native warriors who are really going to do the fight for you. And you can look at this even in this era. You go to the Battle of Tenochtitlan against the Aztecs. Cortez had like uh, 300 dudes, like 300 Spaniards, maybe. And then the other 100,000 warriors he had were all native people who were fed up with Aztec imperialism. And this is the same thing. You could choose the country, choose the colonizer you want, and they've participated in a similar divide and conquer scheme. And uh, it's easy to say, oh, well, why didn't the native peoples just band together? Well, that's easier said than done. I, you have to imagine, because they don't understand. I mean, they're not native peoples to them. This is their tribe. These are their people. These other people have nothing to do with them, and and these you know these Europeans have nothing to do with us. But the Europeans are promising this, this, and this. They're saying, "Oh, we're going to be free from Aztec hegemony, or you know, whatever Iroquois hegemony, Apache hegemony." Then let's do it. 
it seems like a win-win, but they don't understand. I mean, they weren't ready for the consequences. They weren't ready to be enslaved. They weren't ready to be worked to death. They weren't ready to be, you know, sexually assaulted. And then they weren't ready for the extermination of their culture. I, I cover another native series I cover. I cover the second wounded knee occupation and previously to the to the episode or to the main crux of the episode which happens in the 1970s i talk about you know the the like you were saying the the treaties that were broken and you know the the one-upmanship that was that the government participated in against native tribes pitting them against one another this is the real history of colonization it has very little to do with guns germs and steel i mean that helped that obviously, if you have diseases that some other person has never experienced before, the other person's going to be in for a rough time. But that doesn't mean the entire person's society is wiped out. I mean, a million people can't just drop dead from smallpox. Sure, tens of thousands might die, but being worked to death in a mine with smallpox does not help either. And with... um. The first colonization, Ponce de Leon comes, 1511. This is around 10 years after uh, Columbus's heyday. Already there are different explorers, quote unquote, who are coming to the islands, uh, trading with the locals or making deals with the locals, settling down with the locals. In Puerto Rico, you see a rebellion. There are several rebellions in Taino space. There's one in Hispaniola a few years previous, and they both start the same way. So the Tainos aren't sure if these white people can even die. They, they assume that they must be immortal because they're wearing this shiny, strange clothing, and they have these strange utensils that cut through anything. They, they're just not sure if they're even uh, like able to be killed. So they take someone... Uh, a Spaniard who needs help crossing a river and they drown him. They drown him under the water. And after a few days, they're like, okay, they, they can be killed. And then the warpath starts. This uprising is led by Aguebana II. He's sometimes called Aguebana el Bravo or the Brave. He rallies something like 10,000 Taino warriors uh, to his side, to his banners. Some Taino tribes are like no this isn't our fight we're not going to we're not going to participate but most of the island of puerto rico's like warriors are in the field the spaniards have something like 120 guys that are still alive on the entire island everyone else gets wiped out by the tainos uh, the west of the island is completely decimated of spanish colonists but Ponce de Leon, he surprises a small contingent of Tainos. When he captures any Tainos, he brands an F on their forehead for King Ferdinand or for Regent Ferdinand. And he meets Aguaybana on the field of battle. Uh, I want to say it's Guayanacos. He, 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 he meets him at that battle. Uh, I'm not sure about that, though. And during this battle, basically the Spanish plan is to hold back they're not going to charge, even though plenty of the conquistadors want to. They want to just waylay the natives with their steel and with their muskets. But Ponce de Leon intentionally holds his men back. He builds sort of like a, a palisade uh, around his position. And he has his 
you know, the, the first ever gunpowder units, the Aquibasseurs, he has them single out Aguibana. And they can single them out because the chiefs of the Tainos wear a sort of a gold medallion that denotes their rank. So the second Aguibana is killed, the entire rebellion sort of falls apart. It continues in the hills and in the mountains and by sea for about a hundred years uh, after this period. But this was the last time that the Tainos ever stood a chance against the Spaniards. And it was the last time Puerto Rico has been an independent country. Wow. Well, and, and it's interesting that, again, gets to kind of this mythos that has been perpetrated by people who have benefited from the conquest over the centuries. You know, there's this question of, well, why didn't people just rebel if it was so bad? Well, they did. And they were defeated. And the people who, the conquerors, decided to wipe out that history. And so, you know, we see, and, and we've talked about on presidencies, you know, the various uprisings of enslaved individuals in what became the United States. And it was happening on a regular basis. And there's some that we know about, there are some that we don't. And it was in many different ways. You know, they, there mm-hmm. was this quest for freedom, but there's only so much that you can do and it's just, and it's just, it's, it's an important part of our history and and heritage that needs to be shown more light needs to be Mm -hmm. better understood because it also speaks to another part of the human condition that people want freedom. People aren't going to be content to be enslaved. They're not going to be content to be conquered. They're going to find a way and it may take time and it may take, it it may be brutal. Mm -hmm. We're going to find a way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's the story of perseverance. I mean, the native peoples of this, of this continent, of these two continents, North and South America, it's the story of perseverance and there's so many different stories and 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 things you can point to. But uh, just talking to mention briefly on what you just spoke on with enslavement and enslaved Africans, some of the first enslaved Africans came with the founding of the island. And they came, strangely enough, for humanitarian reasons. There were people like Bartolome de las Casas and uh, and others who rallied or railed against the Spaniards and their treatment of the Tainos. Bartolome de las Casas famously said, any native person who is a part of the lands that Spain has conquered has an acquired right to wage most holy war against us and exterminate us from the face of the earth. And they will have this right until the day of judgment. So this guy, he, was a, he really stood up for native rights. But in doing so, he said, let's get African uh, enslaved peoples here so they can shoulder the burden. They're more used to the manual labor. They're more adjusted and acclimatized to the climate, and they would be better workers. It's a really terrifying, crazy thing to think of, but black enslavement was chosen because black people were genetically superior. They had natural immunities to things like malaria. 
and, and something uh, a book like Sapiens. Have you ever read the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari? It's an incredible book. It, it talks a lot about prehistory and our our founding as a as a, a modern society and modern culture and where it all basically stems from and comes from. And he talks about this how how black enslaved peoples were used because they were superior. And there's this strange dichotomy that uh, genetic superiority has been used throughout history to oppress people. It's a very strange, and now you have white people claiming genetic superiority for the exact opposite reason. So as I was saying, African peoples were chosen because of their superiority uh, at least in terms of their, you know, genetic makeup, they were considered mm. to be the the superior worker as, when compared to, you know, the native worker who almost died almost right away. They'd go into the mines and then they just die. It would be weeks before they would be pass away. Well, and and it's interesting in the the context of what became the United States, kind of same thing initially and. You know, there there are some instances, I'm pretty sure it's about 100 years, maybe a little longer, that there are attempts to enslave Native peoples in the American colonies and ultimately enslaving African individuals becomes the greater you know, push because of kind of the same thing that, you know, coming from areas that were typically warmer had certain immunities to certain things and so it's these parallels and and it also speaks to you know so much of american history the traditional approach is kind of an isolation but we see even outside of what is typically talked of in in American history that we're seeing some of the same things because some of the same things were happening in other parts of the Western hemisphere. Yeah. And across the board, every single colonizing nation took part in this. I mean, the, the Colombian exchange as it's referred to as is, is very well researched and studied. One of the few things that people don't talk about in the Colombian exchange is what the Tainos gave to the Europeans so the Tainos gave a very aggressive form of syphilis to the Europeans. Oh, so, wow. yeah, uh, and this spread like wildfire throughout uh, modern Europe. I mean, what we understand as syphilis today came from the branch of the Tainos. Syphilis may have existed previously, wow. but it was not it, it was not at to the extent where it could kill you, which is something that syphilis can do today. It famously killed Al Capone, uh, I'm pretty sure, or at least was a contributing factor. And Tainos gave Africans the, the sweet potato. They gave Africans this tuber called the yucca, which became the one of the number one crops in, in Africa. In places like the Congo, it's one of the few things that's actually grown for sustenance. If you've ever, uh, there's another incredible book. This is a, this is a fiction book. It's called the Poisonwood Bible, but it's about a family, a white family that is is sent as missionaries to a Congolese village. And in the Congo, basically the only thing that they grow, are able to grow and able to eat is this yucca. So the 
millions of, of Africans have the Tainos to be grateful for, for the importation of the yuca crop to their, to their continent. Wow. Wow. And, and again, it speaks to, you know, that, that the story is more complex. This history is more complex than it's been told at times. And there are reasons why the story wasn't told, you know, sometimes it was a deliberate misleading, but it's important to understand that this was an exchange and, you know, there were people who suffered in this exchange, but also it's, it's a more complex story than we often think about. So that's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And following initial colonization, there's problems with the Caribs. Caribs famously burned down the, the city of, of Ponce on the Western side of the Island, completely killed dozens of, of colonists. They have to move the city several different times, or sorry, not Ponce, uh, the city of San Herman. They burned down the city of San Herman, killed dozens of settlers to the point where they have to transfer the location of the actual city several different times. They move it inland, then they move it by a river, then they move it up the river, then they move it. They move it at least four different times before they settle on the actual location of the second city of Puerto Rico, which just shows how aggressive the resistance was to, to early colonists from people like the Caribs. Because at this point, the Tainos that are, are still alive, uh, there's very few of them left alive. Out of 1 million, in Puerto Rico at least, out of 60,000 at least people, 60 Tainos are left by like the 1520s, 1530s. Wow. Yeah, it's a really insane number. And, and some of these people, they may have left, they may have just dipped. And to counter this, the military governors of Puerto Rico would burn their canoes so they couldn't escape off island. They were trapped in a, in a cycle of enslavement. But the people that managed to escape would join forces with the, the Caribs, who were their bitter enemies 100 years ago. But now they, they, they worked together and they, they, they fought together. On top of this, uh, escaped enslaved peoples, they would find their way to the Caribs too. And they would mix so much that uh, the Carib tribe, as we understand it, exists today with a significant amount of African admixture to their to their DNA. And they existed in the Caribbean until like the 18th century when the British deported the entire population of the, the Caribs to today the coast of Nicaragua, uh, which is an interesting part in itself because the Caribs were allied with the French. The French were maybe the next major power in the area. They practiced a little bit different a policy. They believed more in allying themselves with native peoples and profiting that way off of their their labor and their their products. And they became very powerful in the 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 Lesser Antilles, uh, the the Leeward and Windward Islands, uh, and. They harassed Puerto Rico plenty of times, but eventually they would sort of fall out of favor in the region in about the the beginning of the 17th century because of infighting in France itself. So next was the Dutch, and then next were the British. They followed very similar lines. The British 
captured places like Jamaica, uh, the Bahamas, several different islands in the Caribbean. The Dutch, they captured places in the Leeward uh, or in the Lesser Antilles and uh, places like Curacao, uh, which became basically their base of operation in the entire New World. And they were all about profit. That was their main modus operandi. The British famously turned Jamaica into a, a massive, massive slave state where some of the worst things committed against enslaved peoples was done. I was listening to, I think the rest is history, and they spoke about a slave owner in Jamaica who would make uh, enslaved peoples who stole corn, for example, he would make other enslaved peoples uh, defecate into their mouths. This is the level of of oh my god! This is the level of insanity that slave owners participated in in the Caribbean, and this is across the board. I mean, Spain was a little bit more lax in its enslavement laws because in Spain you could theoretically buy your freedom. That was a, a it's been a very well established law in Spain because Spain had slaves forever. And it wasn't just African slaves. I mean, prior to African slavery, it was mostly Slavic slaves. That's where the term slave literally comes from, it's from Slavi, the Slavics. And you see, like I said, they're able to purchase their freedom in, in, circum in certain circumstances or be given their freedom from you know, their quote unquote master. Well, and it was interesting. Granted, it's a, a little further along, but you know, that's one of the things that I've been researching as the as there were increasing American designs on the Floridas. And part of that was that enslaved individuals from Georgia and other southern territories were fleeing across the border. And that was mm -hmm. in part part of the reason, you know, that they could potentially buy their freedom, but then also there were opportunities for them to join into military forces and through that service in the Spanish military, you know, through protecting the colony, they could also obtain their freedom. And so there, it was seen as it was more of an opportunity for them on the Spanish side, even though mm -hmm. there was slavery there as well, it was just seen as an opportunity to break free of slavery that didn't exist in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like you were saying, hundreds flee to Florida, but thousands of, of enslaved peoples fled the Caribbean for Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico was not a, a massive slave state. It, it didn't have a huge population of enslaved individuals, mostly because they just didn't really know how to grow things on Puerto Rico. At first, they, tr they, they tried the gold mining and gold basically fell off a cliff after a certain time in like the, the mid 16th century. Then they tried growing ginger and then they tried growing sugar and then they tried growing tobacco and, and, and all these different crops, which just didn't, they either didn't take or the way they took in the Puerto Rican soil was not the way the market was adjusted for. For example, Puerto Rican coffee has a very distinct uh, sort of like thick abrasive taste. If you're not used to that, it's pretty intense, but uh, for European sensibilities, this was just simply too heavy. It was too dark. Same thing with the tobacco. It was a little bit more difficult to grow in Puerto Rico. Ginger 
was one of the things that took really well in Puerto Rico, but you saw Hispaniola actually step in and say, no, you can't grow any more Puerto Rico because that's our thing. You can't grow any more ginger. That's our thing, Puerto Rico. Sorry. So you saw the, the Spanish state, even local Spanish entities step in and try and regulate Puerto Rican trade. In response, Puerto Ricans said, all right, well, we're going to smuggle. We're going to smuggle it. And they did. And they uh, the next 200 years of Puerto Rican history is defined by smuggling, smuggling, smuggling. People were not going to simply stand aside and, and have to pay all these taxes and all these you know commercial duties to land they didn't even own and, and, and stuff they didn't even technically produce. This was all technically the king's stuff. So- you know, why would I spend all this money trying to bring it to market to the one market that's open to the rest of Spain when I could just sell it to the Dutch dude who parked his Corvette down the street? When I say Corvette, I mean the, the ship. I don't mean a, an actual Corvette. Yeah, yeah. don't <laughs> picture the, the car, people. <laughs> <laughs> so you see the smuggling. You see um, the initial designs on Puerto Rico by a bunch of different powers mostly the British. The British consider it the key to the Indies. When, if you see, you look at a map, it's pretty clear why they thought this way. Puerto Rico forms the fulcrum between the lesser Antilles and the greater Antilles. So if you control that, it's a hop, skip, and a jump to Hispaniola, which is incredibly productive, Cuba, which is incredibly productive, and then you know to Mexico, which is some of the largest silver mines and doubloon making in the world. The British attack two times. They attack like within a few years, the two times. The first is led by um, Francis Drake, Sir Francis Drake, the, the famous circumnavigator of the globe and the feeder of the Spanish Armada. He attacks Puerto Rico because there's a rumor, it's a true rumor, that a Spanish treasure ship has had to dock in Puerto Rico because of a storm. So now there's millions of pounds in 16th century money, so it's like $100 million today in San Juan's vaults. Francis Drake, he storms into the harbor, but in the years since the Caribs have destroyed everything and, and the French have raided the place, they've built massive forts. One of them is El Moro. This is the, the main fort. If you type in Puerto Rico fort, this is the one that's going to come up on your search engine. From El Moro, the Puerto Ricans and the, the Spanish defenders are able to lay down like a withering cannonball fire. They nearly kill Drake as he's sitting in on his captain's seat. It, it says they, they struck the stool from under him. So that must have been pretty intense to be sitting there. And then suddenly you don't have a chair because a cannonball ripped it away Oops. from you. Yeah. Uh, you you I'm, I'm picturing like a cartoonish like it it just disappears and he's sitting there and yeah oh it, it 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 was pretty cartoonish at first but there were two people behind him who got completely obliterated by this cannonball oh yeah so so that wasn't as cartoonish as as that but initially yes it would have been pretty cartoonish uh this attack fails not because of particularly accurate you know cannonball fire, but because the entire British expeditionary force is like completely being destroyed by dysentery. The the co-leader of this expedition was 
uh, Sir John Hawkins or something Hawkins. Uh, he dies right before they get to Puerto Rico. And a week after this engagement, this, this futile, you know, cannonade, uh, Francis Drake is dead too. A few years after this, Earl of Cumberland, uh, I think the third Earl of Cumberland, he attempts to one up Francis Drake's, you know, initial attack. He, he storms in from behind. He lands behind San Juan and takes the, takes the city by surprise, basically. And he actually manages to occupy Puerto Rico. He does so for a few weeks and his occupation is only as, you know, it, it only stretches as far as the, the eyesight of the British patrolmen, you know, otherwise he was not in control of anything and his patrols would get ambushed in the hills and stuff by Puerto Ricans who weren't gonna, you know, sit down and, and let, some British dudes tell them what to do. Uh, they had enough of that already uh, with the, the Spanish monarchs. So that occupation is completely wrecked. It, 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 they suffer hundreds of casualties. There's only a few thousand men in the attack to begin with. So they had to leave pretty quickly. And uh, a Spanish uh, fleet reoccupies the island in a few weeks after the British uh, departure. The next attack is by the Dutch, by a guy named Budujin Hendriksen. Say that 10 times fast. Um, <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he led a Dutch strike force against the island, which was pretty successful. He stormed into San Juan Harbor and captured the city, but he didn't capture the main fort. In the fort, was this guy who was just like steel of like nerves of steel, this guy named Diharo, who was the military governor. And he was told by Hendrickson, he's like, Hendrickson told him, I, I'm going to burn down the city if you don't surrender right now. And Diharo responds, there is building material in the hills and these people are brave enough to rebuild their homes. Leave me alone, basically. And so Hendrickson, he's like, okay, I, I can't look, I can't look bad now. He destroys the entire city. I mean, it rips out the church organ bells. That's how much the city is destroyed. And, and the Puerto Ricans see this from their fort. They become enraged. They're like, this is our whole lives. We didn't even have a chance to grab everything and leave. Cause that's usually what the plan was. You grab everything when the, the enemy fleet arrives and you dip into the, to the forest, but they didn't have time to do that. So. 60 Puerto Ricans are given the order and they storm the, the vanguard Dutch positions and, and they cut the throats of like 60 Dutchmen and the rest run into the sea as fast as they can run. And that's the end of that battle. That's probably the most famous one before the next major British invasion, which is in 1795. Throughout the 1700s, Puerto Rico is experiencing unprecedented growth. I mean, from 40,000 to 100,000, from 100,000 to, you know, 230,000 people. Uh, this has to do a lot with, you know, some of the lessening of restrictions, has to do with immigration from places like the Azores. Huge percentage of the Puerto Rican population can trace their lineage back to Azorean roots. And it has to do with people founding their own settlements against the wishes of a lot of the ingrained powers on the island. So on the island, there are two major powers. There are the Hato owners 
and the hacienda owners. Hatos were basically ranches. They raised cows mostly for their leather and for meat. They also raised horses. Puerto Rican horses are very famous. The Puerto Rican horses are what conquered the Aztecs, for example. Those are the, the horses that Cortez used. They were raised in Puerto Rico. Leather was a huge thing, like I was saying. But hacienda owners, they grew sugar, mostly, almost exclusively, which is one of the few things that really took well in Puerto Rico. And so this conflict led to the necessary growth that the society needed. More communities are settled, more farms are closed in, more barriers are built between public and private land. This obviously caused consternation between the ingrained powers and the, the newer, more agriculturally minded powers. And it causes an increase of the slave population. By the end, of, by the middle of the 19th century, for example, the slave population has risen from like 10,000 in the mid 18th century to over 50,000 in the mid 19th century. So it's a, a huge amount of economic growth, and that severely affects the enslaved peoples of the area because Puerto Rico was, like I was saying, sort of this alcove of, of, of freedom in a, 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 an entire sea of complete depravity and, and apartheid. Uh, not to say that Spain didn't participate in apartheid. They may have had more liberal laws when it came to enslaved peoples, but their entire society was dependent on the citizen's family. If you could prove that you were Spanish, you were given more incentives. You were able to purchase certain property. You were able to do X, Y, Z, and the other thing. You're able to, you, you probably have more connections to Europe, which gives you a better chance at becoming a merchant and gaining wealth that way. If you were an African, uh, an Afro-Caribbean, or someone who is of native descent, these opportunities didn't exist for you. And you were actively shunned in society. There were laws passed against you know, certain people carrying sticks, for example. You couldn't carry a stick if you were a black man. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's that's what the law was. And that's how society operated. Everything was about your blood. If you could prove your blood, you could get a lot of things handed to you. You could become a white person. You could literally petition the government and get a piece of paper that says, oh, you're white. Congratulations. Uh, I don't know what happens after that. But this was a, a huge process. You had to basically disown your entire family history. And now everyone knew you weren't really white. You just paid a bunch of money to get the state to give you this piece of paper. So that's the way that society in Puerto Rico ran. Everything ran through the military governor. He had his like sub-lieutenants were called the Teniente Aguera, which is basically the, the tenant of war, the lieutenant of war. And they took instruction from the cabildos, which were local councils. These weren't democratically elected. You just sort of were chosen if you were an affluent member of the community. Usually you weren't a Creole. A Creole is just someone who has mixed ancestry, either native, African, European, someone who is not of direct Spanish descent 
is what a Creole was. This was the vast majority of people, and it still is to this day. If you look at Puerto Rican DNA today, most of it is African. A small part of it is native, and the rest of it is European. It's about a 60-20-20 split. Not for everyone. Some people are different. Some people, you know, it's, it's whatever. But on average, that's the breakdown. Now, 1795 is a super important year for Puerto Rico. Talk about how that's the, the final British attack. When this attack happens, it's because only recently, thanks to the Treaty of Basel, which I, I assume you talked about in a previous episode, hostilities between Spain and France are at an end. With the Treaty of Basel, Spain cedes the western portion of Hispaniola, what we now consider Haiti, to France, and at the same time, joins on the side of France, previously they were at war, but joins on the side of France against the, I think at this point, it's the second coalition. And this obviously makes Britain very mad. They were expecting Spanish naval support. And so they decide the best way to get back at Spain is to sort of break their colonial empire apart. The first key to doing this was to attack Puerto Rico. So the Battle of San Juan, uh, 1797, and it's immediately following the Treaty of Basel, led by Ralph Abercrombie, very famous British commander, world-renowned campaigns in India, for example. That's what he's mostly known for, his campaigns as a part of the British East India Company. He launches this attack. He does a similar thing to what Abercrombie does. He lands behind San Juan. But this is not the same Puerto Rico of the 200 years previous. This is a completely, you know, studded with works all the way down the line. The entire city of San Juan is a complete fortress. On top of this, the British were expecting just to face, you know, the Spanish garrison of the island. They weren't expecting anyone else to come join up. But in reality, 20,000 Puerto Ricans take to arms against the British. So what becomes an attack against San Juan ends up becoming like a, a siege of the British positions of where they just landed. So they, they were in, a, in between a rock and a hard place. They very quickly dip out, seeing that the entire population is against them. Uh, this victory was renowned. There, there were like a ton of casualties, 200, 300 on both sides. But for Puerto Ricans who were a part of it, uh, it was one of the most talked about events of the entire generation. And it was one of the first times that Puerto Ricans really said, hey, we just defended ourselves. We didn't really need the, you know, hundred odd Spanish guys, Spanish army men who were defending the, the fort. We, we rose up ourselves and we kicked out the invader. Wow. Why do we, why do we need Spain anymore? So these were the first bubblings of nationalism in, in terms of, you know, uh, it, for Puerto Ricans. Previous, it was just an island, and it was an island that was directly controlled by Spain. It was as Spanish, technically, as a city like Barcelona. Well, and, and it's interesting, especially thinking of the, the context of the time. You know, this was the time. So at this point, the Haitian Revolution had begun a few years before. 
this was a time that we're seeing the French Revolution, that we're seeing, you know, by this point, they have the example of the American Revolution. That's something that I talk about in presidencies, you know, how all this comes together and really starts to inspire folks in other parts of the world and starts, you know, people start thinking and and we see the case in West Florida, folks start questioning, well, why do we need Spain? You know, we mm-hmm. can do things ourselves and especially, you know, a little, a few years down the line from this point that we're talking about when the French take over Spain or try attempt to take over Spain and you have this breakdown in the colonial system and folks across the Western hemisphere start asking, well, what do we need Spain for? We're just, we're sending them all this wealth, but what are we getting? And we can govern ourselves. We don't need the Spanish government. Yeah. Yeah. And, and every single colony was saying that in one sense or another, Besides, I think, Peru, almost every other colony was, by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, up in arms against the the Spanish Dominion. Some of the time it was because of some mass movement, like in Puerto Rico or in Buenos Aires, who people in Buenos Aires completely destroyed a British uh, expeditionary force that was sent against them. But in places like Venezuela and Mexico, you see Hidalgo's rebellion, you see Miranda's rebellion, and and this all these all fail initially, mostly because they didn't really want to take over. They were trying to do what, you know, the Americans were doing in the first, you know, fifteen minutes of the American Revolutionary War. They were trying to just compromise with the people in charge. And then they were split up and they were destroyed in turn. By time the 18 teens begin, 1812, 1813, the last of these embers are supposedly being smushed out by the Spanish army in America. They were not prepared at all for Simon Bolivar and his second in command, who himself was a Puerto Rican. Their armies ran roughshod over all of South America. Famously, Bolivar crossed the Andes and connected with a uh, rebel faction uh, fighting on the other side of the Andes. And, and that was basically the end of the, the Spanish Wars of Independence. Puerto Rico played a, a part in this conflict. Puerto Rico and Cuba were one of the only places where rebellion wasn't imminent. Not only wasn't, wasn't imminent, they completely supported, at least most people completely supported the Spanish monarchy. Spain, in turn, uh, granted Puerto Rico the the pet name, most loyal, and what is it? It's it's the most loyal and most noble. That's what the official nickname of Puerto Rico is, and it is still that name today. And Puerto Rico was used as basically a military base. Something like 10,000 Puerto Ricans went to fight against their cousins, basically, in South America. It was a huge, it basically became a military bastion. The future governor was actually beaten by Simon Bolivar, and he turned the entire uh, island into a, 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 a ready-to-go, you know, war vessel, more or less. He had like a 10,000-man standing army in Puerto Rico. 
there was no reason for it. He was just super, he was super worried that like Bolivar was somehow going to sail across the sea and, and land in Puerto Rico. And there were one or two small raids on this level that was participated in by uh, some of these rebels, but they, they didn't really get anywhere of any significance. I think they were hoping that once they landed, the people would rise, but that just didn't happen. And if it did, it didn't happen in any sort of meaningful way. But following uh, circa 1815, the, the king grants Puerto Rico another of these concessions. He promotes the Cedula de Gracias. This is, as it says, a, a way of giving thanks to Puerto Rico for you know, staying on Spain's side. Basically, what the Cedula does is it grants Puerto Rico the ability to participate in the trade that it was already participating in. Now, instead of, you know, smuggling, this trade is now legal. So you saw instantaneous uh, returns on like a, a taxation level. So some people point to the Cedula Gracias as a very important piece of economic incentive for the people of Puerto Rico. But many others say, oh, no, actually, this was just sort of legalizing what was always happening on the island to begin with. So its, um, its impact has to be taken with a grain of salt well and it's almost a case of if you can't if you can't beat them join them so yeah or collect taxes in this case from them yeah in this case like the the, the lone smuggler he proved to be way more powerful than the entire kingdom of spain which is is pretty impressive and it's interesting from the the context of the u.s and uh, thinking of the early American presidencies, that was one of the big sticking points with pretty much every European power that still had colonies in the Western Hemisphere is that the United States was arguing for free trade because mm -hmm. they wanted to be able to trade legally with colonies in the West Indies and the Caribbean and South America, Central America, but they were prohibited because of the way the system was set up the with the colonization and, and mercantile system as it was. And it wasn't that the trade wasn't happening. It was just, it was smuggling. It was, you had, and you know, we talked a little bit about this and we'll talk a little bit more, but you had folks like the operations out of Barataria Bay in what's now Louisiana. And you had these huge smuggling operations it was happening. And so if you didn't legalize it, if you didn't go ahead and just say, let's just make a system and collect taxes, it was still going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's exactly like you're saying. It, it, it was going to happen regardless. So the, the king just basically, he just gave up. He was like, I, I can't. I mean, the rebellions are starting again in South America. I, I, need all my, I need all my ducks in a row where I can get them. And if that means that, you know, America becomes the number one trade partner for the Caribbean, then that's what that means. It, it, at least we'll get some of that return, I think was his argument. And like you were saying, Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. the Puerto Rican market it explodes on the American scene. America, while it's fighting Great Britain, for example, relies almost exclusively on Caribbean molasses and sugar for any of those basic things. Think of all the things that are made with sugar or molasses. And you could imagine how important how crucial the Puerto Rican sugar was. And I think, again, 1812, 
I'm not sure if it was Puerto Rican sugar, what kind of sugar, but it, it put some sort of sugar stopped up the British cannons during the Battle of New Orleans, which I assume uh, I'm not sure if you if you knew that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little uh, a little take that. That's for that's for Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, and and it's and it's interesting, especially at this time, and you know we. We've talked, we touched some of it on this a little bit in presidencies, but we're going to be increasingly seeing this. You know, you have American political leaders at the time. You even see letters from Jefferson talking about, you know, of course, Jefferson and Madison and Monroe had designs on the Floridas, but they were also talking about Cuba. They were talking about other parts. They were talking about expansion beyond what we think of as kind of what became manifest destiny across the continent. And you hear increasingly so, and especially after the war of 1812, more American leaders and in particular leaders in the South who are talking about taking over colonies from the West Indies and colonies in the Caribbean, you know, Cuba's, Mm -hmm. A big one, but there's also designs on Santo Domingo, and I imagine designs on Puerto Rico and and so many other places because they want it to expand, and especially since slavery, even though it existed kind of in a different fashion, it still existed in these places, and so they thought that that would be a natural progression for the southern United States to expand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they did uh, attempt it. Uh, in, I think, the 1840s, there was a guy from the Alsace region of France, or the German-French borderland. He uh, he attempted, he gained a lot of money and, and followers, both in Puerto Rico and in, uh, presumably, America, to launch an invasion of the island. He was held up in Curacao by Dutch authorities, but there were something like 500, 700 armed men ready to land on Puerto Rico at any moment. And this was only prevented at the last moment by intervention of, you know, the Dutch authorities. And there were so many other, like there were filibusters in like Nicaragua. I know we mentioned Nicaragua already, but a guy named, what is it? Joseph Walker, I think is immediately following this period. One of the filibusters, he actually mm-hmm. becomes dictator of the entire country with a with a, a group of 300 armed followers wow. and is in charge for several years you see french designs on mexico during the united states civil war where an entire empire is raised out of nothing from the the, the french crown uh in and their involvement in mexican politics you see um you know you see multiple uprisings of enslaved peoples throughout the caribbean in the hopes that something like this was going to happen with the, the guy who was talking about the Alsatian man, he managed to put some feelers out onto Puerto Rico proper and got the enslaved population to rise up in the presumption that he was going to abolish chattel enslavement. He didn't end up doing this. In fact, he made a point to say that he wasn't going to do this to rich Philadelphia businessmen so he could get their money. But he used the the enslaved people of Puerto Rico to hatch a half-hearted rebellion, which saw the the shooting of several 
Puerto Rican enslaved peoples as simply on a presumption, not that that was it. That's all they did. But yeah, it's, it's, it's it, right after this time, Puerto Rican nationalism starts to manifest wholly. You see things like the Constitution of Cadiz, which I know you talk about in, in your episode, in one of your previous episodes, uh, that's signed in 1812. The vice president of the entire uh, Constitutional Assembly was Puerto Rican himself, a guy named Power E. Geralt. And, and if that sounds like a weird name, the surname Power in a place like Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico actually had a huge uh, Irish diaspora that was a, a, an integral part of the entire community. This makes sense when you understand that Spanish immigration was completely based on the Catholic religion. The fact that it, that Irish people were already Catholic, it was it was a helpful transition to to move over there. And Irish people, along with French people from Haiti, uh, Venezuelans from then the the Spanish colony made up a huge percentage of, and they make up a huge percentage of, of Puerto Rican uh, genome. And this was some of, these are some of the first, you know, liberals of the island too. They supported, like I said, the, the Cadiz constitution and its uh, reintegration in the 1820s. That didn't last too long either. You see these periods of constitutionality in Spain only to have them get completely wiped away by whatever reactionary government is in charge next. The history of Spain is, is really, it's really confusing after a certain point. And I think it's around this time after the constitution of Cadiz and the multiple times it, we go back on the constitution, there's this new constitution. Oh, here's this radical government. Here's this Republican government. Here's this uh, super reactionary government. Here's this royalist government. Uh, that's like the whole history of Spain up until 1970 when when general franco finally passes away and and it affects the entire region it, for a place like puerto rico they're not given their independence well they they haven't been given their independence but they aren't quote unquote liberated by america until 1901 and previous to that they don't emancipate their slaves, for example, until 1873 or 1875, and and this was the this was the a massive point of of contention, and and this is one of the most important time periods in Puerto Rican history for sure, and it's about to turn up into high gear when you see Puerto Rico as a part of the United States. There are a bunch of like nationalists attacks that support Puerto Rican independence. And one of the first, uh, it, it may be the, the originator for the Jan 6th uprising, uh, a group of Puerto Rican nationalists walk into the House of Representatives and just open fire. And they end up severely wounding like six representatives before they're stopped. But it was a huge movement. There was a, a, a plot to kill President Truman. Uh, and my own grandmother, she, she recalled to me hearing machine gun fire in the street of her hometown as she was growing up during this period of intense political upheaval where there were a bunch of nationalists who wanted to, you know, turn back the clock to when Puerto Rico was an agricultural powerhouse. And then there were like moderates and, 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 and liberals. And you saw some socialists start to 
get into the conversation and you see an island that is constantly changing. It's now home to, or it is the origin of many famous singers, dancers, people in the arts, uh, a huge percentage of them are, are Puerto Rican. And this has to do, I think, a lot with the original culture and the original genetics of the land and, and of the people and how all these things kind of meshed and melted together into the Puerto Rican of today. Well, and, and Joe, I know that our time is drawing to a close, but I was wondering if you would be willing to come back on and talk as we get a little further along, and especially thinking of this um, post-Napoleonic as as the Spanish-American Wars of Independence are, are becoming more a part of our narrative. Would you be willing to come on and talk some more and take us through a little further in Puerto Rico's history? But then also, I know that you have been interested in in the experience of Italian unification. Mm-hmm. And so it may be good to have you come on and talk about kind of what's going on that kind of leads into that, because I know, and especially, you know, you said this, this period of Spanish history becomes complicated. And I argue probably all of European history in the 19th century, there is so much going on and so much, to unpack. And again, it's one of those things that's kind of often left off when you're talking about U.S. presidential history and really American history in general, but there are impacts. You know, we're seeing whether it's through direct like diplomacy or indirect with European powers making designs on colonies in the Western Hemisphere, but then also immigration and this surge of immigration to the United States and how that changes the nation. Would you be willing to come back on presidencies and help us to unpack some of this and help us to understand this? I would love to come back on. It's been so much fun talking with you. And I just want to say thanks again for having me on. And yeah, I would love to come back on and and talk about like you were saying, this era and get into the the nitty gritty of of what made the 19th century so complicated. Because as you say, you could take every decade of the 19th century and just make that a podcast or a a book. You could do anything with it. Any any decade, it doesn't matter. The most random 1820s, you think that's boring? No. It's not actually. It's super uh, no. intricate no. And, and confusing, <laughs> and it, it 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 takes a huge amount of study to even you know break the surface of what was actually going on and how it got to that point and how it got to you know these major revolutions like in eighteen forty eight and eighteen thirty where Europe is basically a light and the people think that the established order is gone forever. It, it's very. It, it is the most, to me, it is the most interesting century in world history. And, and it's a re- that's the reason why most of my episodes start in the 19th century or cover the 19th century because this is, I mean, what technology, you want to talk about technology, massive technological growth in the 19th century. You want to talk about warfare. I mean, some of the largest battles in human history have happened in the 19th century. You want to talk about political figures, uh, Karl Marx. I don't think Adam Smith is 19th century, but he's late 18th century um, or around there. But people like that, I mean, it's all the 19th century. 
and like you were saying, the Italian risorgimento, huge movement and entirely built and fueled by 19th century ideas like nationalism, patriotism, socialism, things like this, things that wouldn't exist if the 19th century didn't happen the way it happened. Italy as a state, I contend, would not exist today if the 19th century didn't happen the way it happened. So to understand that is super important. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to a million percent. Absolutely. So audience, there is so much more to come. But in the meantime, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge about Puerto Rico, how how it came about, and kind of helping us to understand the context and the connections with what was going on with the United States, with the larger region. And we look forward to learning more and being able to dive in a bit more. In the meantime, highly recommend checking out the Turning Tides podcast because Joe goes through this and so much more. So please be sure to check it out everywhere you get your podcasts. So Joe, thank you so much again for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. No problem. Anytime. Absolutely. And for our audience, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Joseph Pascone for joining me for the special episode. You can find Turning Tides on all the usual podcast platforms, or you can go to the website at the Turning Tides Podcast, that's all one word, dot weebly, dot com. Special thanks also to the folks at the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Hall's Victory, as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand, for our intro and outro music. You can find out more about the great work that the Colonial Music Institute is doing to research and share information about early American music and dance by going to mountvernon.org and typing in Colonial Music Institute in the search field. Links to these websites, as well as past episodes of the podcast, links to more information about all of the U.S. presidents, and much more can be found at the website, which is presidenciespodcast.com. There, you can also find information about how you can help support the podcast, including, but not limited to, becoming a patron of the podcast. Our patrons help to offset the cost of producing the podcast, so I cannot thank them enough. Just go to patreon.com slash presidencies and sign up. If you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. I'm also available on social media if you're not connected to me there already. I'm on Mastodon, Post, and Facebook as Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram and threads at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.